Welcome to CSU Stories, the podcast where we tell the stories of the unique work of people in regional New South Wales and beyond. From Hollywood careers to amphibian specialists, we talk with CSU staff, students, alumni and members of our communities to share how our regions are shaping Australia and the world. I'm speaking with Dr Melanie Massaro, an ecologist and researcher with Charles Sturt University's Institute for Land, Water and Society. Melanie is particularly interested in the effects people have on conservation efforts to help native animals, both in Australia and overseas, how these efforts have gone wrong and ongoing efforts to get it done better. Melanie, what can we do when we find a small population of an endangered species? Once you have a small population, then there is various steps that can be taken to actually help out this particular population. And the first thing you really need to know is how many individuals are there. You also want to figure out what stage are they really threatened and what is the threatening process or what is causing them to not survive. So that could be diseases, that could be introduced predators, so mammals often, sometimes disturbance by humans. If you take a habitat away from a particular species, then they they struggle to survive. So, Or if you log down all the trees, you have arboreal mammals can't find nesting sites anymore. So you really need to find out what is the problem here. Why are the species found on islands so susceptible to extinction? On islands, we have, unfortunately, when you look at extinction pattern across the world, we'll see that actually island species or island biota are particularly vulnerable to extinction. The reason is that they are usually inherently small populations. You also have, on in many island archipelagos, you have speciation occurring, which means that you have single species that occur on single islands. So if there's a, something happening to that particular island, humans arrive, log down all the forest, all of those species that need forests will disappear, or usually when you have humans arriving on these islands, they often bring with them, unfortunately, a suite of predators, rats, cats, and they wipe out lots of native species. And we know that, for example, the introduction of introduced species, especially rodents, have been the major cause of losses of island biotas. Have you examples of how species have been pushed to the brink of extinction? I have done a lot of work in the Chatham Islands. In New Zealand, we've lost many bird species. Many birds on the main island of the Chatham Islands do no longer exist, so they can only survive on the tiny islands where there's no mammalian predators, and even there, they're struggling to hang on. Lord Howe Island is another classic example and a very topical example at the moment. In 1918, there was a shipwreck, and ship rats came on land to Lord Howe Island and literally wiped out a large number of invertebrates. Think of the Lord Howe Island phasmid. It's massive. It's really big. It's like 15 centimetres long. It's very wide, but it's very slow as well. And they used to be very, very numerous on the main island of Lord Howe Island, but because of the introduction of rats, it, it disappeared. It was rediscovered then on the Balls Pyramid underneath a little Melaleuca bush. It was rediscovered. Lord Howe Island lost many more species. Several species of birds have disappeared, and it's all due to this introduction of rats. What has been done to address the introduction of these predators on the islands? 
In island systems, what we do a lot over the last 40, 50 years are large rodent eradications where there's a massive effort of systematically baiting the island and then removing these rodents in one go. Humans have been very closely involved with introducing these problems to island environments and elsewhere around the world. You've given us a couple of examples of how it's all gone wrong. Have you got some examples of how it has been improved again? If I go back to the Chatham Islands, it was a similar story then with the Lord Howe Island Farsmith. Black robins were actually thought to be extinct and then they were rediscovered in the 1930s on a tiny little island, which is called Little Mangare Island. And they sort of hung on there for quite a while, but they weren't doing very well. And the population was declining just because the, the bush was very, very small on top of this windswept island. In the 1970s then, 1976, the birds were actually then moved to a larger island, Mangare Island, which is the neighboring island. And it was it's predator free, so no mammals there. However, the bush is quite small. Then there was a hands-on conservation effort to bring that species back. So they literally started up an interspecies cross-fostering program. And that's really, really hands-on. So literally they found all the nests of the robins. They were At the time there were only five birds left, three females, two males. But unfortunately there was only one male and one female that actually raised lots of offspring and uh, passed on their genes. These eggs were found and then researchers took those eggs and placed them into the nests of Chatham Island tomtits, which is a related species. And the tomtits would be very good mums. They would look after these eggs. And in the meantime, the robins, it's the same thing like in chickens. If you remove the eggs, they will lay another clutch. So this is how you induce them to lay multiple clutches in a year. They laid another clutch and then they usually were allowed to keep that clutch or, you know, even that second clutch was removed as well and then they would lay another clutch. So the sole female, which is the bird that really made that species survive, is called Old Blue. There's even a plaque on the Chatham Islands for this particular bird. If you ever fly to the Chatham Islands, look at the airport. That species now has recovered to a certain degree. So now, in the last few years, there's been around 300 birds. The population grew quite rapidly in the 1980s, almost 100 birds. The population growth has slowed quite dramatically over the recent years, but that is due to inbreeding effects. Why is inbreeding such a problem in these small populations? And I suppose, what are the consequences of inbreeding? If all the individuals within a small population, in this case, they're all on two islands and they all are descendants from one pair, the problem is that their genomes are very, very similar. And then if you have individuals that all more or less look the same genetically, the problem is that these populations are extremely vulnerable to diseases, but they also have inbreeding effects, which means their eggs might not be hatching, their chicks might be dying when they're still in the egg or shortly after hatching. We're currently working on these issues, trying to help them out as much as possible. What does this mean for conserving species in more widespread environments, such as those found across Australia? It's not all that different. Because humans have had such an effect on the landscape, and here I'm talking mostly due to agricultural practices, 
New South Wales used to be a forested area. It used to have lots of iron barks, like we now find in Chiltern and, and a few remnants left. We've logged so much over the last hundred years in order to grow their agricultural crops. That leaves remnants. So now we have these little remnants left, which are still native bushland. Some of them are not the original bushland, and they've sort of been recovered, they've been left alone. Some of them are the original bushland. And usually these patches are on poor soils, so you couldn't do agriculture there. Chiltern National Park is a classic example close to Albury. There was some mining going on, but it wasn't farmed because the soils are poor soils. It's now a national park. You can think of these patches of bush. It's almost like an island. Because remember, it used to be vast areas that are wooded, and now we're left with these tiny little patches. They almost act like islands. So animals that need these natural native ecosystems with lots of bush around forested areas, they have to somehow find ways to get from one piece of bush to the next piece of bush. And we know from some excellent work done in Queensland in the 1980s where a similar thing happened. We know that depending on how big these remnants are, you have a healthier diversity of mammals left in these remnants versus if you go to the smaller areas, you have fewer species in there. So can the Australian continent now be considered a mass of islands for native species? Even in Australia, we can be thinking of these remnants are like islands and it's all about how many of these islands do we have how can we build stepping stones? Because if we think of the squirrel glider, for example, we know that they move through these landscapes. We have isolated populations that can't cross the Hume Highway. And in order to, to make it possible for them to have healthy, you know, have a population with lots of genetic diversity, we need to mix these individuals within these populations. We need to mix them up. So we want to increase gene flow. And in order to increase gene flow, we need to provide them with habitat so they can move through the landscape. And that is a real serious issue now with lots of species. And I'm talking about squirrel gliders and birds. They are species that they have fairly good dispersal abilities. But if we're talking about some of the smaller reptiles, they don't move the same distances like some of the birds. And the problem is the same. There's so many barriers for these native species to disperse from one side to the next. They have to go through habitat is highly dangerous for them. If we're thinking of all the introduced animals, dogs and cats, and I can't stress enough that dogs and cats are predators for our native animals. And as soon as these animals have to move through these habitats where they can't hide from these predators, they're gone. What do you think we can do then as a community and as a society to help this interconnection between isolated habitats? There has been a targeted effort to increase habitat. So the main problem is that we're losing habitat too rapidly. And with that loss of habitat, we're losing species. The problem then is that you somehow need to connect these patches of habitat we need to have corridors and stepping stones to allow species to move through the landscape safely. And there is a big problem there. There are some efforts, for example, if you drive from Albury to Melbourne, you'll see these little bridges, wildlife bridges, that allow uh, species to cross the Hume Highway. There's other efforts like replanting efforts, a big effort to convince farmers to plant trees in certain areas so they're 
they can be used as stepping stones, so little places where species can go for a little bit and then go to the next patch or corridors between patches. So within this riverina area, I know there's been quite a lot of work by various agencies to increase these corridors between these patches for, for squirrel gliders. For some species, you need to be a bit more active. So that means you may have to physically move frogs from one area to the next area and reintroduce them. What about the vast plains across northern Australia? Are there islander habitats in these areas too? So in the Northern Territory, it's interesting. So if we look into arid zones and savannah, we don't have many large stretches of savannah. So Australia still has big parts of it, but there's problems. One of the major problems in in northern Australia are invasive species or introduced species. It's ungulates, so we're talking about hoofed animals, such as cows, horses, camels, pigs, donkeys, goats as well. So we started a project three years ago where we look at the impacts of these feral livestock, their effects on waterholes in a savannah. We have fenced 10 sites, so we have 20 study plots and we chose 10 sites where we fenced the waterholes. They're natural waterholes, so they're not man-made. During the wet season, these waterholes fill up. Now I have a project over the last three years where we're actually checking what species are coming back. We are looking at water quality, but also vegetation, so which species come back and how it is changing. But then also birds, we're looking at which birds come to these waterholes because one of the key things in the savannah is everybody goes there. Usually these waterholes don't have crocodiles, unlike rivers. So if you are a big buffalo or a cow, it is much safer to go to a waterhole to have a bath and to get cooled down than it is to go into the river. It changes the entire structure of the waterholes once you have these feral livestock in these waterholes because it leads to the water quality. There's more turbidity. What you eventually will get that lots of the vegetation around the waterhole is affected and then you'll lose many of the bird species or plant species. So everything is affected by this. And what effect does fencing out these feral animals have on the waterholes? What we've seen over the last two years is that if you fence off these fairly small areas, 150 to 200 metres by 200 metres, it really changes quite dramatically. There's various pea species, for example, that the buffaloes and the cows love, and they will do a lot to eat these pea species. But if they um, are able to regenerate, we find that uh, lots of the finches will come down using these pea species and then go to the waterhole and get water. So we're finding some interesting differences, and this is just two years after we put up the fences, we're finding quite significant differences between the sites and how they are being used. The study is ongoing. We're pretty excited about already the changes we're seeing by simply fencing. And it is really as simple as just fencing off water sources. So what is the most important threat to these species that we as a society could address now? The major problem is really that deforestation is almost faster than the reforestation. And unfortunately, that is going everywhere. It's particularly bad in in Queensland, but I'm not saying it's much better in New South Wales. There has been some improvement in Victoria. Overall, we need to avoid losing any more habitat. 
Thanks for listening, and we look forward to sharing all of our CSU stories with you. For more information on CSU stories, go to news.csu.edu.au. Thank you.